WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're listening to highlights from our most recent Cape Fear Conversations event, which Waterline Brewing graciously hosted earlier this month. It's actually the second time they've played host to this series, which aims to bring together experts and people with real lived experience for public conversations. And this is actually the third forum we've held after our inaugural event on black history and equity in the Wilmington area, which we held here at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington, and a forum dedicated to LGBTQ issues in southeastern North Carolina, which we held at Waterline. This time, we focused on the issue of homelessness, looking at what factors are pushing people out of housing, what we get wrong about them and what they're going through, and how we can help them get back on their feet. Our panelists for this event were Katrina Knight, Clayton Hamersky, Karen Garcia, Caitlin Maddox, and Pastor Meg McBride. Here's our moderator, WHQR reporter Kelly Kenoyer, with the first question and Pastor McBride giving the first answer. talk a little bit about how working people end up homeless in our community. Like, what are the economic factors that can lead to homelessness? So I'm usually hanging out with people that are chronically homeless. They've been out on the streets for a year or more. I've known some of them for since 2015, since I first started engaging with persons on the street. Some of them are putting a little something-something together with work. Oftentimes, it might be under the table. Sometimes people have had jobs, but because of personal tragedies, like a man told me his house burned down and he became homeless. Also, a lot of factors are disabling conditions where people just cannot sustain work because they are physically unable to perform the job duties that are required of them, and then they end up getting let go or fired from those jobs. Also, the other thing I just want to mention is people that are on Social Security Disability Income, SSI particularly, which is if you haven't had a robust work history within the past 15 years, are only making $914 a month. So where do you live when you only make that much money? And if you're on Social Security Disability Income and you go to work, at a certain point when you hit a certain level, you'll begin to lose money from disability income because you're earning money at work. So it's hard for people to find jobs that can accommodate them. Katrina, jumping onto that, I know that you are one of the primary providers at Good Shepherd Center of some of the housing that is available to folks who are on SSI. Can you talk about how those programs work with permanent supportive housing? Permanent supportive housing is a best practice that works all around the country. It's not something we we created. It was working lots of other places before others first brought it to the Wilmington community, and then um, we piloted some of it and then decided to kind of lean into it. Um, And it's a best practice because it's sometimes the main thing or the one thing that works to move the most fragile people, the folks who fit that stereotype that that we picture, that person who's been in the woods the last eight years, that person who's been sleeping in their car or in and out of shelter for many years, to housing and helps them actually stay in housing for the long term. But there are some real tricky elements with it that are, are a heavy lift, not just to create that kind of housing, but especially to operate it. Because uh, if, you're, if you're doing it right, it's very low barrier. You're not 
creating or putting forth this list of really heavy-duty requirements. Because the whole point is you're trying to engage people where the usual sorts of systems haven't worked for them. So, uh, you know, folks with really significant special needs are disproportionately likely to become homeless, and then it just makes sense. They have the hardest time uh, completely independently figuring out how to make that leap back into housing and to where they can hold on to it. You know, just one of our developments, there are 40 people living over there who aren't in the woods anymore. They're not sleeping downtown at the library anymore. They have a key to their own place and are cooking their own meals and going to the grocery store. And, and yes, there's a full-time social worker on site to kind of, you know, run interference when they're confused about a new medication or, or need help getting to the doctor or what have you. But, but if you go about it that way, you really can make an end to homelessness possible for people who otherwise we would have presumed that just couldn't be in the cards for. So I'm Caitlin Maddox. I coordinate a street outreach program. It's a county and city collaboration. We are fairly new. We were uh, conceptualized in um, September of this past year. So we are mostly working directly with unsheltered folks who are out on the streets, out in the woods, things like that. You have to have a pronged approach to homelessness. And one of the things when you asked about how do working people end up homeless or homeless is to recognize that ideally they never get to the point that they're on the street. One of those tools that we need to support in our toolbox is eviction prevention. So we do have a astronomical rate of housing cost burden people in our community, which means you are paying too much for your rent and your housing costs. And that ultimately could equate to you are one tragic, you know, flat tire, a missed paycheck, an illness in the family, those things that can derail a person's finances that then put them into a state of eviction and then potentially homelessness. If I could just add um, to your point, you know, people think, oh, the folks in your shelter, if you could just help them find a job or a better job, that would fix everything. By about 2006, the majority of adults and parents seeking shelter with us were already working people. They already had a job. They still have a job. Um, what they don't have is housing any longer. Um, so it's, it's, we have to remember that for all the people who will say, oh, the majority of it is mental illness, the majority of it is uh, disability, you know, the majority of it is substance abuse and what have you. The number one reason people find themselves in housing crisis in general, but especially homelessness, nationally and here, it's, it's economic in nature. It's the mismatch between what you need and, and what you have. That, that gap is just too big, and it's really hard to, to overcome, to gain, and to, to hold on to housing. And we remain a community that runs on people who earn $10 an hour. You, can, you cannot you cannot live here on $10 an hour. So it's not hard to understand you know, when you really think about it. Karen, I'd love to give you the opportunity to jump in here as um, a, case, a casework provider here in the community. If you want to explain what an ACT yes. team is and how some of these components impact your clients. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, my name is Karen. Um, I am um, an assertive community treatment team lead for Physician Alliance for Mental Health. Um, what that is, it's the most intensive community-based service that somebody can have with uh, severe and persistent mental illness. Um, and so I am largely uh, supporting individuals who have psychotic disorders we do have a lot of individuals who are chronically um, un homeless, and our individuals um, are typically who are homeless um, typically have 
no resources um, to support them in housing. They don't have access to those resources. Um, these individuals are on a fixed income, and so it's they can't compete with um, with the regular housing market. They their only option is subsidized housing or voucher programs, um, and we run into so many issues with that because there aren't subsidies and vouchers available for these individuals. If there are, they're year-long wait lists, um, and there's a lack of support for these individuals when it comes to the need for hospitalizations. Um, there's not, um, a lot of our individuals don't qualify for shelters um, because of, they may have somewhat of a checkered past um, and they might not meet the uh, criteria to, um, to enter a shelter. They don't meet the criteria to get on a lease. Um, they don't have the resources to afford any sort of lease when it comes to needing a deposit first month's or last month's rent. And most of the programs that do support them just have very, very heavy wait list or are closed altogether. This question's kind of um, largely for Clayton, a little bit for Katrina as well. I know that we have a tight housing market here in New Hanover County and that it's just getting tighter. I'm curious if you have sort of a historical knowledge of when things have kind of cinched down. I know that there's always been folks who fall out of the bottom of the housing market, but it seems like it's more and more folks as time goes on. So what do the numbers look like? How has that moved over time here in the region? Mm -hmm. And what solutions do we have as a community to serving these lower income folks in our community who might not be able to afford housing? As you mentioned, it is a tight market. And something that um, I think was not on this slideshow, but that you have and I have talked about before on the program is um, this phenomenon wherein when we've got such a tight housing supply, we have you know folks who would normally buy something in the 400s or whatever, um, they might settle for something in the threes if they can find it. What was the question? Did I answer this? <laughs> <laughs> what are the solutions to the tight housing? Ah. So do we have to build our way out of a housing crisis and into solving for homelessness? Or does that... Does building any housing solve the homeless crisis? Just to jump in and define terms a little bit, what I often see described as workforce housing is between 80 and 120% of area median income. So just a little bit below the median and a little bit above the median. Whereas affordable housing is usually 60 to 80% AMI or even a little lower, 50, 40%. And then the supportive housing, the permanent supportive housing, that is more in like the 30% or lower of AMI. Mm -hmm. So folks who will never be able to participate in the housing market without a little bit of help. Speaking of historical kinds of things, you know, I would say 15 years ago when we would pro uh, propose creating housing to move folks out of housing crisis, uh, there's a lot of, you know, we don't want those people, not those people. Um, and I know what they mean by those people. They meant people of color. They meant people with disabilities. They meant all kinds of things by that. It's a little more nuanced now. You know, today, oh, I'm not against affordable housing. I love affordable housing. I love you. I love Good Shepherd. I just don't want it here. I just don't want it next to where I live. That was Katrina Knight, Executive Director of Good Shepherd Center, speaking at our Cape Fear Conversations panel on homelessness. When we come back, we'll dig into case management and how people end up unhoused in the first place. I'm Ben Schachman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for being with us. 
Today, we're hearing highlights from our Cape Fear Conversations panel on homelessness here in the Cape Fear area. Our guests are Katrina Knight, Clayton Hemersky, Karen Garcia, Caitlin Maddox, and Pastor Meg McBride. Now here's our moderator, WHQR reporter Kelly Kinoyer, with the next question for our panel. All right, jumping on to the next thing, uh, I want to get a little bit more into the case management component of this. So say somebody has had that crisis, the car crash, the the grandmother in the hospital losing a job, and they've lost their housing because of this. What happens next, and what resources are available, and what's in short supply? I'm going to start with a pitch for coordinated entry. So we have in our tri-county area the Cape Fear Homeless Continuum of Care. It's a HUD mandated. That means we have to have it. Um, Not really an agency, but an effort that brings together all the local homeless service providers and whoever else gets caught in that net. And one of the main functions of the COC, we call it the COC for short, is is data collection. One of the systems that's used for, for that is called coordinated entry. And so when you become homeless, you call a phone number and they actually do an assessment over the phone, which rates your um, your vulnerability. Thank you. Thank you. So that's based on if you have mental health, if you have a physical disability, substance abuse, if you're a victim of domestic violence, if you suffer from HIV AIDS, if you're a youth ages 18 to 24, or a parent youth, meaning someone who's 18 to 24 that has their own children. So from June of 2020, the end of June through July of 2022, over a two-year period, 2,178 people called that number. So there were that many people in our community that were homeless, right, for like a second, and they needed help. And then what happens is we try to take the top, which now we're calling it actually the people that are in the deepest of water, who have really very little chance to self-resolve, and we try to connect them to services like permanent supportive housing, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe rapid rehousing, maybe they've just fallen out for a second, and we can help them just get right back in. And the burden of that work falls on your homeless service providers in the the community, like like Good Shepherd, uh, like First Fruit Ministries, and others that are doing some housing. I took a guy last week to Social Security office and had to go in with him and help him do the little check-in computer, you know, sit with him in the waiting room because this is an individual that's not comfortable with engaging in very formal systems. Like when you go to the Social Security window, it's a little intimidating. There's a big piece of glass there and a little tiny hole you have to talk through, right? And so people need to be supported in these efforts. Like, it's just not easy for everybody. And I'll just note as well, um, when we talked about the point in time count, that's a one-day count. So this last count, 573 people, I believe, is the number. 558. 558, thank you. Since she's on the COC board, she knows. Uh, That's that's really the tip of the iceberg. We don't know who didn't get counted. And so I think that this number, the 2,000 people over two years, those are folks who found out about that phone number. It's worth keeping that in mind. These are already large numbers, but there are people we might not know about beyond those numbers. I was just going to say... 
you know, back in 2004, Good Shepherd was preparing to break ground on and build a 118-bed shelter for two dorms for single men, a dorm for single ladies, and then private rooms for homeless families with children. And it was, it was in response to, at that time, I, I, what appeared to be a, a clear need for some additional emergency beds. Uh, and my first conversation with the board, you know, we, they were asking me difficult questions, and I was asking them difficult questions, cause trying to figure out who are these people and what are, what are their plans. And I said, well, what, you know, what is the goal of this shelter? And they said, well, what do you mean, what is the goal of the shelter? Like, isn't it obvious? I said, well, you know, are we doing this to keep 100 adults and children alive overnight to the next day, or is there more to it? And to their credit, they said, well, we don't even really know what you're, we don't even know what you mean, <laughs> but we're open to learning. And, you know, between about then and now, the National Alliance to End Homelessness, in, in particular, um, has, really, has really pushed organizations nationally to do more and better by people than just keep them alive overnight. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's harder, it's messier, it's more expensive. You know, the goal should be you are with us for as short a time as you need, and we are expediting you, your children, that veteran, that senior, getting back to a place of your own just as quickly as possible. So nationally, they piloted something in 2008, and we have some amount of it here in this community called Rapid Rehousing. It's that case management with kind of a boost of financial assistance as well, usually. So if we can step in with first and last month's rent or security deposit, that speeds up that mom and her kids being back in their own place, those children waking up in their own beds on Monday, and the school bus picking up them up there instead of where we are. That's the goal, and then that in turn opens beds up for that family that will meet Tuesday night who needs a safe place to come. Quick question. Do you have enough money for the program for the level of need? No. <laughs> um, you know, like a lot of things, like a lot of things, it kind of waxes and wanes, and there are good years and there are less good years. We talked a little bit about short-term unhoused situations here. I do want to get into the the thornier issue of the chronically unhoused population, folks who um, have been in the streets much longer, and it's not a rapid rehousing situation. It's more. Uh, I don't have any documentation to show that I was even born in the United States and those barriers. So can, can I have some of the caseworkers here talk a little bit about what it takes for folks who've been living in the streets for that long to actually get to the point where they can get into stable housing? I just want to preach for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I think proximity is one of the really keys to this kind of work getting with people, like really with people that have these needs and not assuming that we know what they need. Um, one of these questions is like, uh, why do you think people are homeless? I've never asked somebody directly, like, hey, why are you homeless? I might say, hey, Caitlin, when was the last time you had your own place? Or, hey, Caitlin, tell me where you grew up and how you ended up in Wilmington or, you know, but I never ask people directly. It's like, I thought on the way over here, it'd be like people saying, hey Meg, why are you overweight? And I'd be like, well, when I was a toddler, my grandmother, you know, like it's like this so nuanced and complicated and unique story. And so we have to get to places where we can listen. Um, and that takes the slow, deep work of being with people 
in places that they're comfortable enough to open up to you. And then you can start to answer those questions, right? So, I definitely think uh, one of the things that took me some time to wrap my head around, because I don't work with these populations on a day-to-day basis, I'll occasionally interview somebody who's found themselves in the streets, or I'll interview caseworkers who work with them every day, but I don't have the experience of talking to people every day who are dealing with these problems. And I recently did a story where I interviewed Katrina and I talked to Meg a little bit about what folks were going to do during the hurricane as Idalia was coming through. And you have to work to convince people to come into shelter because sometimes, even in the face of a hurricane, they might feel safer at a camp where they're familiar with the people they're around rather than going into a shelter that's unfamiliar when they don't have rapport with the caseworkers who are there. So when you talk about the hierarchy of needs, sometimes what we would consider like the rational thing for somebody to do, if you look at the lived reality of what they've gone through in their day-to-day lives, they are making a rational choice or they are making a choice that makes perfect sense to them given their experiences and the circumstances that they've been through. Um, I don't know if any of you want to add to that. Even the nicest shelter, you can make it as supportive as you know how to make it. Uh, make it low barrier it's still scary for people to come and and that's without like an anxiety disorder or you know any kind of significant you know mental illness I mean just as people it would be intimidating to come it would be embarrassing you know for our parents who come like having to basically admit like my main job as a parent to keep a, a roof over my child's head obviously I have failed in some way I mean it's just an utter humiliation for people mm-hmm. and we're trying to minimize that and give them as supportive and healthy an experience as we want but we we are the first people who understand that that's that's not for everyone uh, a valid criticism of emergency shelter is it's not is not the ideal intervention for people mm-hmm. with severe and persistent mental illness mm-hmm. um, for lots of reasons, but for, for no other reason as a start than, you know, we're usually congregate in nature. You know, mm-hmm. someone who has really significant needs as, as an individual, I have no ability to squirrel that one person away and give them just a ton of individual attention apart from the rest of mm-hmm. the group. There's lots of interaction with others, whether it's at meal times or, or what have you. And, you know, I, I think... Our team does a great job of trying to win people over. You know, we try to work with our outreach partners to, um, you know, not, not only Caitlin's team, but also um, Jack Morris under under Wilmington Downtown Inc. to say, if you can help, if you can help convey to people that, you know what, we don't actually lock the doors when you come in. Like, you can leave at any moment if you're uncomfortable or you just want to take a break or what have you. Um, you don't have to sign your life away. And even if you just want to come during the day to take a shower, we, we would still love to talk to you about a plan for getting back to housing again. And I just want to piggyback on that because that actually extends beyond shelter, right? You think about the process to apply for food stamps, the process to apply for veteran benefits. Those things are litigious and confusing and intimidating. Those, you know, you walk into offices, you don't know where you go. We experience it as educated, socialized individuals who nobody's going to turn their head to you when you walk into those offices, right? But that's part of what outreach teams do, is that we try to come to them, meet them where they are, and help navigate those processes because it may be like, you A, maybe you didn't know the resource was there. So first and foremost, hey, do you know what's available, right? We could be taking you to get a shower. We could be taking you to get a meal. Um, But also just saying, you know what, let me drive you down there. Um, You know, 
Allie's super friendly. She's got a really cute picture of her dog on her desk. Like, I'll sit with you. We'll go through the paperwork. If at any point you get, you know, overwhelmed or intimidated, we can go. And just being able to help kind of take that step with them creates that access to services that might otherwise be a barrier just out of intimidation alone. So to Katrina's point, it absolutely applies to shelter. It applies to a lot of other services as well. So I think that that is um, kind of that symbiotic relationship of us being able to go out, meet people where they are, and then try to help connect them to the services and the wonderful service providers in our community that are doing amazing work that might just not we're, we're helping bridge that gap to connect them to those services. That was Caitlin Maddox, a social work supervisor with New Hanover County, speaking on our Cape Fear Conversations panel on homelessness. Now we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll tackle a big assumption that we hear a lot, that people are choosing to live in the streets as a lifestyle. I'm Ben Shockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're hearing highlights from our Cape Fear Conversations panel on homelessness. Our guests are Katrina Knight, Clayton Hamersky, Karen Garcia, Caitlin Maddox, and Pastor Meg McBride. Now, here's our moderator, WHQR reporter Kelly Kenoyer, with the next question for our panel. We often hear from politicians, from locals in the community, that this is a lifestyle choice, that people are choosing to live in the streets. Um, Is that true? Rather than reacting to problems, and I understand that all the decisions that were made were, you know, they had to be made in that way. But how do we start to become a community that can listen, communicate, and respond so that all people are no longer marginalized. And so when people say that, honestly, I think it's a bunch of BS. I'm going to be pretty frank. Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'll say, I, <laughs> that's, a tough one to, that's a tough one to follow, Meg. I, you know, I wonder sometimes if as a people we, maybe a nice way of looking at it, or the most generous way that I can come up with is that we, we're suffering from compassion fatigue. You know, sometimes, and it's not just about the unhoused population. You could you could attribute this to any, you know, refugee or other crisis where, you know, maybe it's just too taxing for folks to really internalize or process other people's suffering, and and we sort of rationalize or give a, ourselves a pass not to go through the, you know, the stress and the turmoil of um, fretting for that person or, or being stressed out about their their suffering and their misery by saying, you know what, they must have, they must have done something to deserve this. Um, and so now I'm relieved of worrying about them or feeling some sort of responsibility for them. All right. Um, we're going to move to audience questions because you all had a lot of really good questions. Um, but I'm going to start with the ones that are a little bit more rapid fire. Um, Meg, this is a question very directly for you from the COC. How many chronically unhoused people do we have right now in this community? We don't know, right? Um, 
So the point in time count is a snapshot. The count happens on the last Wednesday of January, and you go out literally and try to put your eyes on people that you think are homeless or experiencing homelessness and try to survey them. Um, and this year we did a pretty good job of that. And so the, the language is on any given day in New Hanover County, according to that survey, there are 558 people who are homeless right now. The number of chronically or unsheltered folks is, is harder to determine. During the point in time count, they know it's coming because it happens on the same Wednesday of January every year, right? Um, we try to do things to draw people out, food and other things, but people people don't want to be counted. Like, do you want to be counted? Do you want to ask, mm -hmm. hey, Caitlin, do you have a disability? Are you suffering from mental health? Are you a drug addict? Like, the questions aren't asked so harshly, but that's what they're getting at because we're trying to get as much information as possible. Um, in our day center, when we opened in May... Uh, we now have an average of 49 people coming two days a week, Monday and Wednesday from 9 to 1. We are packed in there already. And so I'm seeing 49 people on Monday that don't have anywhere to live. Um, and you could come see them too if you came and volunteered there. <laughs> and so I, I don't... I think people get hung up on numbers, and I think what's really probably more moving is this idea of stories and getting to see people on a regular basis that are really, really suffering. Like, we have a gentleman that comes to the day center that is with Physicians Alliance for Mental Health and probably one of the most ill people I've ever met. It breaks your heart when you see him. And you have to wonder, like, if it's just this one person who was unhoused in Wilmington, his life matters, and he's against so many barriers. Um, even medicated, he still remains symptomatic. And you just sit there shaking your head like, how is this person ever going to get helped? Like, what landlord will ever let this person live there? Um, and yet, we are working for that one person as well. I will note here as well, in terms of, because every individual matters, you're absolutely right, but also there is the money component of helping folks. And one thing that has stuck with me for the entire time I've worked in Wilmington, basically, I did a story for the newsroom several years ago called What If? And it was, what can we do if we were to open up the $350 million that New Hanover County has from the hospital sale and just spend it to solve a problem? And I asked Katrina, to tell me what she thought we could do about homelessness. And I don't remember what I said, so I'm worried about your answer. <laughs> well, it may have changed. It's been a couple years. But we were talking about permanent supportive housing. And you said at that time that there were around maybe 100 people who desperately needed that exact style of housing in this community. And to build 100 units of permanent supportive housing in this community would be around $50 million, is what you told me at the time. And we have $350 million sitting in that coffer. And the endowment is going to be putting out $50 million every year. So that's the numbers, and that's the money, and that's this community. That's what we have. Um, I also got some, so we're going to move on to more rapid-fire questions. Uh, we got one about what happened 
between 2015 and 2019 to make the homeless rate decline so much? So, Katrina, I think you're the best to answer oh, that Oh, something happened. Something happened in there. Uh, so, as a community, we leaned in more to housing, housing as the answer. So, we were doing more uh, in that period in terms of rapid rehousing. So, again, that team of case managers slash housing specialists uh, looking for affordable units over by the university or back in Leland if the family was from Brunswick County or, or what have you, um, and really in a more intentional way, uh, rallying around households in crisis and helping them figure out that path back to housing, which is it's difficult and it's it's tough because it's so individualized. You know, there there are some common themes, but every individual or household in front of you has has a different combination of strengths and, and challenges. Uh, that, that they're working with. So that happened also um, after a 10-year fight to get the land, we finally were able to develop SECU Lakeside Reserve, which uh, is our 40-unit permanent supportive housing community across from Greenfield Lake. Um, right behind Legion Stadium. So if you've ever seen the pretty little blue buildings and not known what the pretty little blue buildings are, um, the 40 people who live there were those people who I was mentioning lived in the woods for a lot of years, uh, lived in their car, cycled through and through shelter, ER, shelter, ER, behavior health, ER, uh, and without a, a very special kind of housing intervention, we're not going to make it back to housing again. They're not, to someone else's point, candidates for rapid rehousing. They're the folks I can't just put in an apartment over by UNCW and say, okay, holler if you need anything. Well, they need something. You know, they need a, a little, slightly heavier touch of maybe ongoing uh, check-ins, support, learning, you know, how do you, take the, how do you take public transportation? Or if, if that's not an option and, and we need to go to the grocery store, let's have a weekly shuttle to the grocery store or to Walmart. Um, basically that, that full-time social worker keeping the wheels from falling off again. So it's, it's, and it's not that intensive. Like a lot of residents, once they move in, you know, housing is a health intervention. Housing is a mental health intervention. 20 years ago, everybody in town wanted to talk about housing like this thing unto itself. And today, thank goodness we understand it as very much at the heart of our functioning, our well-being, our quality of life. Uh, so I, I, it's not a cure-all. You know, we don't move people into their cute little apartment and suddenly they don't have their chronic conditions and their, you know, mental health issue or, or what have you. But it's amazing how automatically uh, the hospitalizations decrease or stop um, the, the what were sometimes nightly calls to 911 because someone felt like they couldn't breathe. Stop. You know, just having that roof over your head, that key to your own place, that idea that, you know, I'm not feeling well, I can go lie down. I'm not in a shelter where everything is so, you know, uh, scheduled and, and um, kind of working with the needs of the group versus always the, well, you the know, needs of the um, Caitlin brought up the example of the, you know, the rental assistance. Um, you know, prevention is a little dicey because 100% of folks who can't afford their rent, you know, in their minds, they might become homeless if they don't get the assistance, but like HUD data didn't find that that bears out. So we're not good at we're not good at sort of identifying who really needs it and who will truly completely lose their housing versus who is legitimately in a crisis but wouldn't face that. So prevention can be um, a little complicated, but you know, again, the counties. Um, 
the county sort of pilot where they're providing uh, some some gap I think they call it gap wrap mm -hmm. gap rental assistance um, is promising one of the things we've done just as kind of an experiment we, we do a lot of just trying things to see what might be an improvement um, a couple of years ago we we added a full-time person to that case management team who we call housing retention specialist uh, because I mean at this point we have rehoused whether through rapid rehousing or, or uh, other means literally thousands of people but but we're not curing their poverty we we know they are they are still very much on the margins a lot of the time and so particularly the ones who um, face the most challenges you know with their, their physical health their mental health we we worry that okay so so technically we can check it off that we move them back to housing but but we we worry that if things don't go just so like they they might lose it again and so this full-time person is tasked with going and doing home visits and and checking on as um not a small group of people who, who technically are housed again, but again, again, um, we just want to make sure, like, maybe a new challenge arises and that, that family or that individual needs connection to other services that we hadn't addressed back when um, they were in our shelter, for example. So it's a little, it's still a little bit of an experiment for the, for the most part, the vast majority of folks that we have um, assigned her as her caseload are remaining housed. Um, but again, you know, it, all, all the great things we're doing, we're still up against the fact that the vast majority remain very low income. They remain very challenged. And so even, even, even though it feels like a win, every move to housing, you know, we're, we're not under any illusions that it, it, it might still be tenuous or that a, a new life crisis tomorrow couldn't put all that in jeopardy. So we're just, we're trying to head off any any new situations that might arise. Um, a lot of life skills development. Um, although, you know, if you only have but this much, budgeting isn't gonna help you, you know, out of that. Um, but, but I think in lots of different ways, trying to keep things affordable for folks. Um, the, the thing I'm struggling with is the, the rate at which people's rents are increasing. and. Um, feeling like we don't, we're kind of at the mercy of what property managers and, and landlords are charging. Yeah, that's kind of a structural eviction yeah. process. Um, one thing that in my research as a housing reporter that I've seen as well is having automatic representation for tenants in eviction court uh, often helps prevent evictions or allows landlords and tenants to come to more of an accord. Typically, in a city like Wilmington that doesn't have that built in, 10% of tenants are represented by a lawyer or an attorney in court, whereas 90% of landlords are. So it's really mismatched the balance of power there. And when there's built-in tenant representation, they're connected to resources automatically that help if they do end up evicted. And they also are much less likely to be evicted. Uh, this has been shown in cities that have instituted this policy. So talking about having a city uh, department focused on tenants, that kind of thing, uh, that is a component that could be under consideration that I've researched a lot and think is interesting. Uh, next question, and three different people talked about this, so a lot of people in this room are interested. How should I respond to the panhandler on the street corner? The pastor says, give if you feel moved to give, but don't tell them how to spend the money. Again, it's a place where there's a lot of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. um, I recently was told that panhandling is not synonymous with homelessness. I disagree with that, actually. I think they're kissing cousins pretty close together. 
Um, and I don't know who in this room would have the guts to stand out on the median on Oleander Avenue with a sign and ask somebody for money. That would just about, I would not be able to do it. Do we have to sit and figure out all the reasons why someone is doing that? It, it could be to go get drugs or beer, or, um, but it could be because someone is hungry. It could be because they're trying to pay for their lodging. It could be that they're trying to buy dog food. Like, we just don't know. Panhandling is never going to go away. Like, we can do all the things we need to do to make it be less obvious. Uh, we can put up signs. We can make QR codes. We can... Uh, past laws, you're always going to see panhandling in any city you go to, in this whole United States, probably the world too, right? And so, um, again, like, I'm sometimes guilty of seeing a panhandler on the corner who I know, like, oh gosh, there's Fred, right? And, um, and I don't want to make eye contact with Fred because Fred knows that I have stuff or I can get into a building that has some things. Um, and yet, uh, I moved in those moments that, you know, I look away, um, and I admit to doing that. Like, oh, I don't have time for that guy right now. Um, and I think that we need to find ways to have time for people, right? To pull into the parking lot of Whole Foods and say, like, hey, like, can I, can I help you with something? Sometimes people just want to talk to you. And to not be afraid to do that, right? Like, oh, this person can ask me for money, or sometimes they want a cigarette. I used to smoke. I know what it's like to want a cigarette and not have a cigarette. It's pretty, it's pretty upsetting, right? And so, um, yeah, I just, I don't think that our efforts should be put towards panhandling, right? Like, let's put that money into something else. You mean enforcement? Absolutely, yeah. I will note here briefly, uh, City Council had a whole presentation. There's a constitutional right to panhandle, so it's difficult for police to enforce it because there's, there's a legal right. It's a First Amendment right to be in the street asking for money. It is speech. So there, there's complications around uh, trying to enforce it legally, uh, which is part of the reason that it is fairly common in the United States. Karen, you looked like you wanted to add something. Um, just, you know, with working, um, with working with the homeless population, especially those who might have a substance use disorder or a mental illness, um, there's so much that can be said about, as, you know, um, Meg mentioned about creating a relationship with somebody, you know, even just getting their name and listening to them. Um, they have a story. I don't think anybody wants to stand on a median in the middle of a busy street when it's 90 degrees out, um, you know, and so um, one of the things that I feel like is really important to mention today is that those with um, individuals who are on um, Social Security income um, don't want to be on um, a fixed income like that. Most of the clients that I work with, um, they want a driver's license. Um, they want to work. They want to have their own place, take care of their own bills. Um, and so I think that it's really, really important that um, our community and our business owners create opportunities to help these people um, obtain and maintain employment. We have um, specific people within our agency to 
be that bridge for that individual. We have specific programs just to help people work, um, you know, and according to the Labor and um, Statistics, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, um, people who have a disability are less likely to be hired than people who don't have a disability. Um, you know, there's data out there that over half of people who have a disability want to work. It's something I see every day. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so incredibly difficult for these people. There's barriers to work, like transportation and stuff like that, but to just be given that chance. It requires patience. It requires education and understanding um, for those business owners. But we've seen it been done, and it's, it's been beautiful. This is a question that we hear a lot. Um, there's a lot of assumptions about where people are from. Um, so are the homeless in Wilmington from this area, and are folks migratory when they are unhoused? Meg, you had a strong is this, reaction. Is this where we ask for a show of hands how many in the room are born and raised in Wilmington and never came from somewhere else? Yeah, show of hands. Who's from Wilmington? Raise your hand. Born and raised. Wow. There are about 30 people here, and only two raised their hands? I think it's a misconception to go around and say that, hey, uh, Wilmington has the best resources for homeless individuals. Therefore, if we make those resources better, everyone's going to move here. Um, so I actually pulled some data before coming, right? And in our state, for all the major areas like Wake and Buncombe and Mecklenburg, we have the lowest percentage of homeless individuals living in Wilmington. So I think that it's like 7.9% compared to these other places. Asheville's um, twice. Asheville's twice. Or Thank you. Times. So, you know, plus if you're homeless, how are you getting here? Like we live two hours from any major city. Uh, so if you want to see any decent show, no, no offense, but you're going to go to Raleigh or Durham, right? If you want to see the big con, Taylor Swift, you're not going to see her in Wilmington, right? Um, and so I think that people get here how they get here. I mean, I moved to Wilmington 12 years ago and never heard of it. And I got here, you know, and I drove. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I just think that's a way to, to make an excuse to say, like, let's not do this because, which is just ridiculous. Like, where's the data that says you know, so-and-so moved here because the services were better. We're not asking that question uh, in our surveys. And I just think it's a reason not to, to be challenged by the, the complicated solutions to the problem. I think it's, it's a cop-out. I'd love to just ask, um, I know a lot of folks in the audience are probably feeling like they want to do something. So what should they do? What can they do to help? So in addition to advocating for... Or, or maybe softening up um, your, your friends and neighbors on development, um, you know, and growth generally. Um, you know, uh, we at the Cape Fear Housing Coalition advocate for, uh, you know, sensible developments that are, you know, Im implementing affordable housing, taking density bonuses, housing uh, seniors, uh, you know, and sometimes we have to go to bat for them um, because there's a lot of people on the other side that show up to uh, planning board meetings or you know, the board of adjustment or whatever, uh, angry neighbors you know, with pitchforks and, and torches that say, you know, this, this can't be here. Um, and you know, the, the people on the other side are, are human and, and often elected and they don't, they don't wanna make folks mad. And so seeing that I think creates this, this social problem. So what we do is we go up and we advocate and we say, look, 
this is something that we need really desperately in our community. And so um, if ever you feel uh, motivated to, to go even a step further and, and do that, I think that that's, we'd love to have you, you know, we'll, we'll have matching shirts, I think, at some point. <laughs> we always need, of course, money, supplies, and volunteer help at our various uh, outreach things. But one of the things that we cultivate at our day center, and especially at our warming shelter, which is our emergency pop-up we do in the winter, is this idea of radical hospitality. And so there's no barriers to entry. There's no ID to show. There's no form to fill out, no questions we ask you. And I think that we can cultivate radical welcome inside of all of us. One of the ways to do that is just by getting to know the people around you or maybe make an unlikely friend. So the most unlikely people that I never thought I would be friends with in my life turn out to be my greatest teachers. And so how do you think about cultivating this idea of radical welcome within your own self and the places that you go every day? Um, I think ultimately the solution to all of our problems is creating a more healthy fabric and structure in our communities by getting rid of the we and them attitude. It's all we. It's all of us. Um, when one of us suffers, we all suffer, whether we experience that suffering or not. And uh, so, yeah, like do your own inner work, right? Like take a look at what you have to offer and, and ask yourself what you can uniquely give. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our panelists, Katrina Knight, Clayton Hermersky, Karen Garcia, Caitlin Maddox, and Pastor Meg McBride, and our moderator, my colleague, Kelly Kinoyer. Thanks also to super producer Camille Mojica, who did the lion's share of the editing on this show, and of course, thanks to technical director Ken Campbell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org, or as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts about this episode or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>